If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53 and going through uh, verse 72. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53 and going through 72, continuing our series, going through the book of Mark. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's not you. It's me. Whether you've ever been the giver or receiver of this phrase, we've probably all heard it before. It's a classic way to reject someone. It's most often used in breakups. George Costanza invented the it's not you, it's me routine as a way to reject someone without telling them exactly why. When you want to end a relationship, you tell them it's your fault, not theirs. And now, supposedly, they don't feel so bad about being dumped. You can reject them without giving them a reason. In today's text, Jesus is rejected. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they finally and decisively reject him as they've been on a trajectory to do since Mark 2. Peter rejects Jesus as Jesus predicted he would last week in Mark 14. And neither group ever really gives Jesus a clear reason, a clear explanation for rejecting him. But I think from Mark's account of these rejections, we can see four reasons why we tend to reject Jesus. Four reasons we reject Jesus from today's text. The first reason that we tend to reject Jesus, which we can see today, is because of comfort. We reject him out of comfort. Verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. 
And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Sometimes it's just easier to follow Jesus at a distance. He had been led to the high priest with all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. He had been arrested, and now the time had come for the trial. After predicting that he would be taken and killed, the first steps toward this prediction coming true were being enacted. Peter had earlier that very night promised that he would never leave Jesus. He said even if everyone else fell away, he wouldn't. Even if he had to die for Jesus, he would do so. But now where is he? He's following Jesus still, yes, but at a distance. When Jesus was betrayed, taken by the crowd with swords and clubs in last week's text, Peter put up a small fight. Enough of a fight to cut off the ear of a servant who likely was unarmed. But then, Peter, just like everybody else, ran. And now, yes, he's still technically following Jesus. He's still close enough to know what's going on. But he's not so close that he might end up on trial with Jesus. Not only is he a distance away from Christ, but what's he doing? And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter's cozying up to the guards. They had just led Jesus away under cover of night to be tried for crimes that he simply didn't commit. And Peter, supposedly his closest follower, supposedly his most ardent supporter, was nowhere to be found. He's standing shoulder to shoulder with guards by a fire. This was more comfortable for Peter. You see, he's not so close to Jesus that he's in any immediate danger. He's not fighting the guards. He's not being detained by them. He's with them. He's among them. He's not out in the cold, suffering for following Jesus. Even at a distance, he's cozy next to the flames. It is easier to follow Jesus at a distance than it is to follow him up close and personal. It's easier to fraternize with the world and to be warm than to possibly be alienated, to be out in the cold. Sometimes when we reject Jesus, it's simply because it's more comfortable to reject him than it is for us to follow him. Out of all the ways that we reject Jesus from the text today that we'll see, I think this is probably the most common in our time and place. The most unnoticed in our time and place. It's so easy for us to do. You can reject Jesus out of comfort simply by showing up on a Sunday morning once every three to four weeks. You see, you can still kind of claim that you're following Jesus. You can still claim that you're going to his church. Yeah, maybe it's at a distance, but you're in eyesight, you know? You're close enough to be able to see what's going on. He knows you're there. You can simply go about your life just like everybody else around you. You can stand shoulder to shoulder with your coworkers, your family, your friends, and you can do exactly what they do all the time. And if you're really clever... You can even trick yourself into thinking that this is what true Christianity looks like. You see, it doesn't mean that you have to be weird or different. You can look, talk, and act just like everyone else because that's how you get them to see Jesus. That if you look like them and act like them and talk like them, they'll see you and think, maybe I want to be like they are, which is just like me, just like I am. We fool ourselves into thinking that they'll only be interested in Jesus if they think that we are cool if they think that we are like they are, if we're not that different from them. You can be warm by the fire, comfortably claiming to live the Christian life without it costing you anything, without your Christian life looking anything like Christ's. 
without it looking like you denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Because who wants to do that? Doesn't that sound hard? Why would you do that when you can be warm next to the fire? You can be comfortable and cozy next to the guards. We tend to think that our rejection of Jesus has to look like loud defiance. That only the people who are rejecting Jesus in our minds are the ones who are angry atheists. Only Buddhists, only Muslims, only crackheads or murderers or homosexuals. But I think all of them are outnumbered greatly by those of us who are rejecting him simply because it's more comfortable for us to live our lives as if he doesn't exist. We so often reject him out of comfort. But Christ shows us a better way. He calls us to that which is uncomfortable, yes. He calls us to that which is hard, yes. He calls us to that which costs us our lives, yes. He says to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him and his example. Because he forsook comfort for us. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave us an example to follow of denying yourself, of going to the cross for the sake of the one you love. He shows us a better way. Galatians 2.20 says that we should consider ourselves to have been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer we who live, but it's now Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. He doesn't call us to a life of comfort. He calls us to a life of the cross, to be crucified with him. You can't follow Jesus and be comfortable. When push comes to shove, something has to give. And if you choose comfort over Jesus, you have rejected Jesus. We have to push past and through our own comfort in pursuit of following Jesus because that's what he did for us. He showed us the way of life he was calling us to. So much of the New Testament, when you read it, those letters are written to a persecuted church. It's giving them instructions and hope for how to stand firm in the midst of their affliction. This theme is so prevalent, it really makes it seem like persecution is a natural and inevitable part of the Christian life. It makes it seem as if if you don't feel like a sojourner and stranger sometimes for being a Christian, if you never feel persecuted, then maybe it's because you're not actually following Jesus. If you're never persecuted, if you never feel different, If you never feel out of step with what's around you, you may actually be rejecting him out of comfort. But comfort isn't the only reason that we reject Jesus. We also reject him out of malice. The same hedron, this council of priests and scribes, they were looking for reasons to reject him. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. You see, they weren't really interested in justice. They weren't really interested in getting to the truth. What they wanted was for Jesus to be gone. They hated him. They were his enemies. But that pesky Jesus just wouldn't give them any ammo to use against him. There wasn't any reason to hate him like this or to put him to death. But they were looking for those reasons anyway. They had rejected him out of malice. They hated him. And when they couldn't find a good reason to reject him... They just started making one up. Verse 56. 
For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. They were bringing in star witnesses for the persecution to convict him, but they couldn't get their story straight. You see, according to the Old Testament law, you had to have multiple witnesses who agreed in order to convict anyone. If you had conflicting stories, both accounts had to be thrown out. They had to be tossed. So what they had to do was to get people to show up in the dead of night to bear false witness, to break one of the Ten Commandments. And they all had to agree perfectly. And they just weren't able to make it happen. They weren't able to cook this trial. And I think that's funny. Because they've clearly decided the outcome that they wanted. They clearly decided that they were going to kill Jesus anyway. They had already arrested him at night. They had already caused all of this commotion. And when the witness testimony didn't line up, why did they even care? The outcome was already determined. They were going to keep calling witnesses until two of them agreed. So just call it close enough. The whole procedure is a farce. So why not just say, eh, whatever. You guys mostly agree. Let's kill him. It's as if they came in and said, uh, had one that said, I I heard him say that he was going to tear down this temple made with hands and replace it with one not made with hands. So then they asked another person, is that true? He said, well, sort of. I remember him saying something about the temple, but I I think it was something about feet. He was going to rebuild it with his own two feet. Close enough. Whatever. You want to kill him, just do it. Close enough. They had already rejected the truth, so now it was time for them to make their own. That was the extent of their malice against Jesus. And when all that didn't work, when they couldn't figure out how to cook this jury trial, it was time for the high priest to step in and to put his thumb on the scales. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? You see, you don't have to have witness testimony that agreed. If you could get the accused to confess to the crime. He was trying to put Jesus in a corner, and nobody puts Jesus in a corner. But I love the question here. What is it that these men testify against you? Uh, why don't you just tell us the crime that you've committed? Uh, Why don't you tell us what you did to deserve this trial and this death penalty, Jesus? We can't figure it out. But we know it's supposed to happen, so if you'll just say it, that'll really help us out. They were looking for a reason to reject him. They were looking for any reason at all. They had looked everywhere. They had made some up. And now they were just going to see if he would confess to something. They were going to reject him simply because they hated him. They were going to reject him out of malice. And the craziest part of this is, even as they were trying to reject and kill him out of malice. He was going forward of his own will, out of love, even for them. That he was going to the cross to pay for even those sins that they were committing right then against him. He loved them, even as they hated him. Even as they were rejecting him out of malice. And when you reject Jesus out of malice, you end up looking pretty silly along the way. But you can also reject Jesus out of idolatry. 
That's the third way you can reject Jesus from today's text. You can reject him out of comfort. You can reject him out of malice. But you can also reject him out of idolatry. Look at what the high priest does next. Verse 61. But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The high priest was out of options. He can't get someone else to convict Jesus for him, so he's trying now to get Jesus to convict himself. But Jesus stays silent. He's like a lamb before its shearers. He won't mount a defense against the allegations. He won't explain himself. So the high priest asks Jesus something simple. A yes or no question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? He's asking Jesus straight up, are you the Messiah? Is that what you claim? And we all know the answer is yes. And Jesus even confirms it in the next verse, 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But now we're finally getting to the crux of the issue. The reason the Sanhedrin hated Jesus so much. They wanted a Messiah to come. But not like this. The Messiah was supposed to be the anointed one. Supposed to be the next in David's line to come and restore David's throne to the nation of Israel. And they had good reason for thinking that this was going to happen that way. They're getting it from plenty of Old Testament texts, including the one that Jesus quotes back to them. Daniel uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Messiah was supposed to be this Son of Man, who would come up and set up the nation of Israel once again to rule over the whole world. To be the world power. The Messiah in their reading of that text is a man who has been anointed by God to rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. A man who is supposed to restart the Davidic dynasty with a line of kings which would never end after him. But they saw all of those things as needing to be fulfilled immediately. Right now. On earth. The Messiah would come to overthrow Israel's enemies which ruled over them. He would be a warrior king who would make Israel into the world power with an even greater kingdom than they had ever had before. And this time, it was going to last forever. This time, it wasn't going to break up. That's what they wanted out of their Messiah. That's what they were looking for. And this Jesus guy just wasn't doing it for them. His conflicts had mostly been against them, not the Romans that he was supposed to be overthrowing. In fact, how can you overthrow the Romans if he's encouraging everyone to pay taxes to Caesar? How can he restart the nation of Israel for God if Israel's religious leaders don't even like him? How can he lead a conquering army if all of his followers are misfits and outcasts? How can he be the righteous king, even more righteous than David, if he's spending all of his time surrounded by sinners rather than the religious ones? You see, they wanted a Messiah, but what they really wanted was the Messiah they wanted rather than the Messiah that they got. And that means they didn't actually want the Messiah at all, did they? Jesus' answer goes even farther than saying he's the Messiah that they didn't want. He functionally tells them that he's divine. Verse 62. And Jesus said, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. 
And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He affirms that he's the Messiah. He identifies himself with the Son of Man from from Daniel 7. And that enough would have been enough to say he's the Messiah. But he even goes further than the Daniel 7 text. He keeps going. He's saying that he, who is the Messiah and Son of Man, he will be shown to be equal with God. He will be seated at God's right hand and on his throne in heaven. And if they didn't want Jesus to be their Messiah, they certainly didn't want him to be their God. They had no understanding, no frame of reference for how this man standing in front of them could possibly claim to be the God that they worship with a straight face. That's the scandal of the incarnation. That's the scandal of the cross. Not only has the Messiah come to do all that the Messiah was supposed to do, not in the way that was anticipated, but accomplished nonetheless, but this Messiah, this man, he's not merely man, he's God. He's the God-man. He is truly man and truly God to truly save those who are truly his. And that truth is what put the final nail in the coffin for Jesus' trial. This is how they respond, verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They had heard enough at this point. It was so blatantly obvious to them that Jesus was not, he could not be the Messiah, and certainly couldn't couldn't claim to be the divine, that once he said that he was both, they said, that's blasphemy. You can't claim to be the Messiah. You can't claim to be God. That's not true. You're saying that which is false about God. They had rejected Jesus because he wasn't the God that they wanted. They wanted a conquering king, not a suffering servant. They wanted an anti-Roman revolutionary, not an anti-religious leader rabbi. And what they wanted most of all was to get what they wanted. They said, we don't want the Messiah. We want what we think the Messiah should be. We don't want the God in this flesh. We want what we think God should look like. They rejected Jesus functionally out of idolatry. They said, no, not this God. The God I want. The God I am. That's the core of idolatry. To hold something else other than the true God in the place of God. For them, they were holding their misplaced ideas of the Messiah and God over the reality of this Messiah and their God. So really, they weren't looking for a Messiah to lead them. They weren't looking for a God to rule over them. They were looking for a chance to get what they wanted. They wanted to be the ones to lead and the ones to rule. It reminds me of uh, The Office, where Ryan, the talented but flaky employee, says, I got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me at all. So I want guidance. I want leadership. But don't just, like, boss me around, you know? Like, lead me. Lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. That's what they want. He said, we don't want a Messiah. We don't want a God. We want a God who's going to lead us when and where we want to be led. We don't want to be told what to do. And I think that's how so many of us go through our lives. We say, I'm fine with God being the Lord of all and master of my life, as long as he always agrees with me. I'm fine with taking up my cross and following Jesus, as long as he's already going in the direction I was headed. 
when we try to place ourselves, what we want, in the place of the one who saved us and who rules over us, we're rejecting Jesus out of idolatry. We're putting him on the cross just like they did. But the final reason we reject Jesus from today's text is out of fear. We reject him out of fear. It's easy for us to fall into fear and to reject Jesus because it's so risky for us to associate with Jesus. Picking up in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. When the servant girl starts questioning Peter, claiming that he's with Jesus, that really puts Peter in a tough spot. Jesus is like in the next room. He's just outside the courtyard, on trial, risking the death penalty. So being in that place, at that time, following Jesus, yes, at a distance, but still close enough to be in danger, that was risky for Peter. It was risky for him to associate with Jesus. And this was Peter's chance. It was his opportunity to follow through on what he had promised earlier in Mark 14. His opportunity to stick with Jesus even to the death. But fear got the better of Peter. When it came time to prove his steel, Peter flinched. He was afraid. He had three opportunities, not to deny Jesus, but to accept him, to follow him. Not to reject him, but to acknowledge him to be who he is. They even offered it to him. They said, don't you follow Jesus? They were phrasing it in such a way that it would have been so easy just to say yes. And he couldn't do it. Not the first time. Not after more prodding. Not even after further prodding. He went so far to reject this idea, to reject this truth, to deny Jesus so harshly that he was saying, I will put a curse on myself if I am a follower of Jesus. I'll put a curse on you if you don't believe that I'm not a follower of Jesus. He's saying, are you really going to call me a liar? Then that untruth be on your own head. That's how far he went. He was afraid. When push came to shove, Peter wasn't willing to continue to follow Jesus, to continue to accept Jesus. He denied him and rejected him out of fear. Because the risk was simply too great for him. 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter flinched. And because he flinched, Because he denied Jesus so vehemently, he saved himself. He gave in to fear and he avoided the risk. But at what cost? What did it do to Peter to do this? Once he's done so, once he hears that rooster crow for the second time, he remembers what Jesus had told him. 
He remembers just earlier that night, just a few hours before, when Jesus looked him in the eyes and said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And Peter said no. He was so arrogant. He was so sure. He was so adamant. No, I won't do that. I'll follow you to whatever end. And all those words come back to Peter's mind. He immediately remembers what Jesus had told him, and he has to just get out of there. He was already probably sweating from the nervousness brought about by the accusation, but now his face is flushed. Now there's pressure building just behind his eyes. His throat catches. His knees give way. And the tears start to roll down his cheeks. In the Luke account, it says that Peter not only wept, but he wept bitterly. He had denied the one who never denied him. He had rejected the one who never rejected him. The one who already preemptively said, you're going to turn, and when you turn, strengthen your brothers. He had the opportunity to follow through, but he was afraid, and he rejected the one who had come to save him. You see, he had avoided the risk out of fear, but now he was faced with the reality that some risks simply are better than the alternative. He had rejected Jesus, and now he was faced with the aftermath of that choice. And I think it's pretty obvious that if Peter could do it over again, he would have followed Jesus to whatever end, rather than reject him in this moment out of fear. The good news for Peter, and the good news for us, is that this wasn't the end for Peter. He did turn. He did repent. He was accepted back. He didn't continue to reject Jesus. He didn't continue to deny Jesus. He turned, followed him, eventually to the death. He did what he said he was going to do. It took some time. It took some trials in between. But he was able eventually to follow through. And even him doing that was still out of the will and power and majesty of the God who he had been trying to serve this whole time. Jesus held Peter fast in his arms. He wouldn't let Satan sift him like wheat. He prayed for him that when he turned, he would be able to strengthen his brothers. Rejecting Jesus doesn't have to be the end. Rejecting Jesus doesn't have to be the final word. Even when you reject him out of fear, you can accept him. You can follow through. You can follow him to whatever end. And it's my prayer that we will do that today. I hope we'll choose to stop rejecting Jesus for whatever reasons we have. Because though we reject him, he never rejects us. Though he was despised, smitten, afflicted, rejected by men, he continued through to the cross, through the rejection. And even on the cross, he prayed for the ones who were putting him on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they have done. Though he was rejected by them, he never rejected them. Though you may have rejected him, he doesn't reject you. We can follow through. It's my prayer that we'll choose following him over the comforts of this world and this life. We should stop hating him due to our own sin and turn toward him in love, responding to the love that he has extended toward us, dying for us, even while we were still sinners, even while we were his enemies. I hope we'll follow him in true, who he truly is, rather than our own desires. 
that will serve him, that will worship him as God rather than ourselves. I pray that we'll push past our fears and the real risks which might come with following Jesus, knowing that following him, taking that earthly risk for the sake of an eternal reward is infinitely better than the alternative. That's my hope for us today. That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to sing your praises, to respond to your dying for us, not with rejection, but with acceptance, with belief, with repentance. If we have been rejecting you out of comfort, let this be the day that we begin to take up our cross. If we have been rejecting you out of malice, let this be the day that we turn toward you in love. If we have been rejecting you out of idolatry, let this be the day that we worship you in who you truly are as the King and God of all the universe. If we've been rejecting you out of fear, give us strength. Give us courage. Hold us fast in your hands that you might save us on the last day. Let this be the day that we no longer reject you, but accept you, love you, serve you, and worship you. Let that be true in this place with these people and to everyone they come in contact with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our song of response?